Yeah, that, that cat was um, a beautiful Savannah cat. Oh, yes. Um, Chico? Chico, yeah. Chico <laughs> oh, she, she is a fan. Yeah, she, that, that, that cat was absolutely beautiful. That was one of the cats that um, really, when it came in, everyone, everyone was kind of like, well, oh, it's Savannah. It's, it's, it's not a very nice cat. And you have to be really careful with it. And all you needed to do was go slow. And this cat was a total cuddle monkey just wanted to like lay in your arms and cuddle and he would let you do any examination as long as he was being cuddled at the same time so um he gave a he talked but that was all he ever did and it was a be beautiful beautiful cat sorry for saying sorry media presents the purr podcast the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips tricks and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team if you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and... And I'm Dr. Susan Little. <laughs> you were a little slow there, Dr. Susan Little, but... Uh... It's usually because I'm laughing during our the, the right occasion, I guess, but uh, this is the Per Podcast. Very excited to be back because we. This is the second week with our amazing guest. Guest. Now I can't speak anymore. <laughs> I want to say amazing cat, but it is amazing <laughs> guest, uh, Dr. Karen Perry. And uh, we have so many questions left. I know that Dr. Susan wanted to talk about cases that she yeah. saw online, and I wanted to talk about uh, the top five patients that she sees uh, every day. So uh, we have lots to talk about and thank you for being back, Dr. Yeah. Karen. Yes. Good to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the first time we've had a surgeon who does orthopedics, um, mm -hmm. right? Because we've had a few other surgeons, but this first one who does orthopedics and who does such a great job with cats. So I'm got, so my, I want to ask you about um, one of your patients named Sophie, mm -hmm. who had... I understand a, a, a fairly unusual procedure, surgical procedure. So why don't you tell us Sophie's story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Sophie came to see us with uh, a hind limb lameness issue. One of, one of the few cats who did actually come in and declare themselves as being <laughs> truly orthopedic. So that did help us out a little bit. Um, lovely family, lovely cat. Um, let us do pretty much everything we wanted to do to her. So that was good. Um, when we did examine her, um, the owners described that she was having difficulty jumping up. She was having issues um, kind of getting to the places she wanted to be. And that was causing her some problems because psychologically she wanted to be up and looking out the window and doing all the things she used to do. Um, but she couldn't quite make it to those spots anymore. Um, so when we looked at her and on examination, she had um, a cranial cruciate ligament rupture and she also had uh, medial patella luxation. Yeah. And while we see that pretty commonly in dogs, um, it's oh. something that actually Sophie was, I think, one of the, I think it, she was the first cat I think that I had seen that had that combination oh. of injuries. So mm -hmm. we were a little uh, torn as to exactly what to do. We done a study um, a couple of years previously in dogs comparing the treatment options um, that we have for that condition, or at least two of the treatment options that we have for that treatment, uh, for that condition. Um, and we compared a tibial tuberosity transposition and advancement with just an extra capsular suture and a tibial tuberosity transposition. And in dogs, we found that they had a better outcome um, and fewer complications with the TTTA 
-hmm. procedure that's a mouthful but um <laughs> that's, uh, so um we saw sophie and i was very torn because in my head i was like it's not a dog therefore you can't just translate your study a kind of details across it doesn't necessarily translate um, but when we were looking at the sizes of her bones, um, I really felt that if I did a tibial tuberosity transposition, I was going to really compromise the positioning of my um, lateral suture to the point that it probably wouldn't do the job I wanted it to do. Mm. Um, and so we spoke to the owner, very honest, said, well, you know, this is the situation we're in. We've never done one of these in, in, a, in a cat before, but we've measured up and it looks like a TTTA is feasible and will work. Um, and the owner was, was very, very open to Sophie being the, the first. <laughs> we basically said, well, if this doesn't work, then we commit that we will fix yes. anything that, that goes wrong and it'll be on our dime. Um, and he was absolutely okay with that. So we went ahead, did that procedure, um, combined it with all the normal patella luxation things for cats, like narrowing the patella and um, deepening the groove, all those kind of things. Uh, it was tricky. I'm not going to say it was the mm. super easy procedure. It was, it was fiddly, there were lots of very small pieces. Um, but she did absolutely brilliantly. She was weight bearing the day after surgery. Wow. Um, she went home, we saw her back at eight weeks and she was jumping up onto the chairs in rehab, even though we didn't really want her to, um, and was healing great. And we haven't actually seen her back in person since about 12 weeks post-op because she went to Florida for her yeah. summer holidays and um, then COVID struck. So she's still in <laughs> Florida. Um, but, um, so, but the owners have said that as soon as they can get back to, to Michigan, they'll bring her back for, for another follow-up. So it'll end up being about a year's follow-up when we wow. eventually see her back. So um, first one we did. Since then, we've done a couple more um, and they've, they've also gone pretty well. Other than I'm going to be very honest here, one cat called Paulie, who was a little overweight and did not rest very well, um, yeah. jumped a few weeks after surgery and did suffer a complication. But um, it's something that we started doing now in the right case selection and it seems to be at least a viable option we'll see long term how these guys do that's really cool mm. um and it is it is quite unusual to see that combination right so her cranial cruciate rupture was it traumatic or non-traumatic um i'm thinking it was um again kind of cats are not small dogs but it yeah. makes sense that she, she had had patella luxation for quite some time that right. the owners had not perceived was causing her much of a problem so i think it was that constant internal rotation related to the medial patella luxation that probably influenced the cranial cruciate ligament injury um, she was an indoor cat and they didn't know of any trauma that would have caused a traumatic rupture but obviously with cats you never quite know so and she did have um, arthritis in that in that knee that we could see on the radiographs so i suspect degenerative but i guess we'll never know 100 percent mm. you have also done a tpl on a cat don't didn't you yeah that was a, a cat something that we saw completely recently. different yeah yeah that, that cat was um, a beautiful savannah cat oh yes so, um Chico? Chico, yeah. Chico <laughs> oh, she, she is a fan. Yeah, she, that, that, that cat was absolutely beautiful. That was one of the cats that um, really, when it came in, everyone, everyone was kind of like, well, oh, it's Savannah, it's, it's, it's not a very nice cat, and you have to be really careful with it. And all you needed to do was go slow, and this cat was a total cuddle monkey. Just wanted to like lay in your arms and cuddle and he would let you do any examination as long as he was being cuddled at the same time. So um, he gave a, he talked, but that was all he ever did. And it was a be beautiful, beautiful cat. Wow. Um, yeah, so he came in with it with a cruciate. Um, his, his patella was completely stable though. So for him, we went ahead and just did a TPLO rather than that TTTA. Um, mostly because I think we have, um, although still limited evidence, we have more evidence to support TPLO in cats than we have for the TTTA at this point. So where I've got more evidence, I'll tend to go mm. 
that way but for Sophie because she had such a weird combination of conditions for cats that, that we really had to do something a little off the wall. And, and can you for our audience explain once more what the letters are standing for for both procedures? Yeah so um, the TTTA is a tibial tuberosity transposition and advancement so it's basically combining your tibial tuberosity advancement for cruciate disease with your tibial tuberosity transpositions so you just advance the crest and translocate it laterally as well just with one procedure um, so the, the tiny tiny little washers that are produced so that you can just kind of put them underneath the ear and of the cage in the in a, in a straight tta and it does that lateralization for you so fiddly but but totally totally doable um, and then the tplo tibial plateau leveling osteotomy um, is used fairly interchangeably i guess um, with um, the tta um, in in dogs um, very much personal preference really whether you're a tibial tuberosity advancement person or a tibial plateau leveling osteotomy but they both create that 90 degree angle between the straight patella ligament and the tibial plateau and, and therefore stabilize the knee biomechanically so you don't need to replace that cruciate ligament at all. And do you always do that in cats or do you put the the old leg of the suture technique because that's you know there was some research too that said you know in cats it's okay to do uh, extra capsular yeah. uh, we've done several of them i have to say yeah right yeah and and it's, it's funny because we had um, a really 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 good discussion at ecbs um at the last ecbs we were allowed to have um with um sorrel hobbs uh, sorrel langley hobbs and um ava as well and mm -hmm. had a really really nice conversation there about what we all did for for cruciate disease in cats and polled the audience all that kind of thing and i think at the moment we really don't have evidence to say that one's better or worse in cats and so actually my routine is is to do a is to do a lateral suture um and the one thing that i do differently is i actually use a bone anchor in the lateral femoral condyle rather than using the fabella in ah. my experience in cats when you use the fabella the fabella is very very mobile a lot of these cats and i'm a little dubious ah. as to how secure it is as an anchorage point so i tend to use a suture anchor in there um, and I've not done a study on it. It would be very difficult to do, but I'd like to do one. Um, I think they're a little more comfortable when I don't go around the fabella as well. It seems to be they have less soft tissue pain at the, at the, at the caudal aspect of the stifle there, but that's very subjective. Um, so yeah, so lateral suture is what I've done fairly routinely up until, really up until Sophie. And then yeah. Sophie really made me start thinking about the osteotomy techniques. And then the Savannah cat, Chico, that came in was that much bigger, uh, very, very agile, very, very active. Um, and we spoke to the owner about options and said, well, look, in, in dogs, we like TPLO because potentially we, uh, you know, get them back to weight bearing sooner and, and all those kind of things. And, and she was she decided that's the way she wanted to go. So um, I think the jury's out on, on what's best at the moment. I think they're all equally acceptable as long as you do, as long as you're confident in that technique and you, and you perform it correctly. And are you using a little dog set or is it a little cat set? Um, we have a, the tiny little TPLO set with the two millimeter plates, so it's teeny okay. tiny, but we have used it on dogs as well. It's the same one as we'd use on the Yorkshire Terriers of the world and exactly. like that. Yeah. Cool. Do you think that it's the, the small size of the cat that's put a lot of people off of doing things like TPLOs or, you know, the other procedures versus just the, the, uh, the lateral suture? I think, I think it's partly that, and I think maybe also the ongoing debate as to whether this is degenerative versus traumatic in in cats as well i think you know um we really have had a real kind of crossing of the literature here there was a, a paper that came out saying oh no it, it is degenerative or at least it can be and then there was another paper that said oh no 
it probably isn't. And then there was another mm. one that said, well, maybe it is in a subset of cats and, and those kind of things. And I think that makes that decision making a little difficult for people. Mm. Um, so if it's truly traumatic, then strictly speaking, your lateral suture should probably do the job for you. But um, yeah, so I, I think that's one part of it. I think another part is probably cost. Um, mm. A lot of owners are going to really raise their eyebrows at a kind of $4,000 procedure for, for, their, for their cat's stifle. Um, rightly or wrongly, um, sometimes they're less prepared to spend that amount of money on a cat that, well, if the cat's still limping, they probably might not even be that bothered. By it. So um, it's, uh, I think that's probably another part of it. But, but yeah, I think the small size of things and having to invest in that whole different set of equipment, it's okay in a, in a university practice, you know, I'm not worried about the inventory that's sitting on the shelf, but in a private practice, having to justify having two millimeter sets and 2.4 millimeter sets and 2.7 millimeter sets for the occasional cat cruciate is probably a little difficult. So I just want to ask you about one more patient because then I know Yola wants to. Yeah, ask. but let, can I finish this, oh, this sure. uh, before we go? So the, the the biomechanics of a TPLO is probably better than a, you know, you know, if you just look from a biomechanical uh, standpoint, mm -hmm. then the extracapsular technique. Yeah, and the biomechanics makes sense. Um, I, I think, and the TPLO is is attractive because the planning of it is so repeatable like every time you plan a TPLO everyone gets within you know 0.5 degrees of, of what they agree on so, so I think that's that's kind of makes it really attractive too um, I think that's why a lot of people are more scared of the TTA the planning preoperatively is, is very dependent on your radiograph it's it's there's a little bit more individual variation there I think we don't yeah. have that down quite as well as we have the TPLO planning so um, I think that's why if, if any of the osteotomy techniques take off in cats I suspect it'll be the TPLO rather than the TTA but we'll see maybe I'm mm. <laughs> yeah still not enough in the literature I, I just finished reviewing the new surgery uh, or orthopedics chapter for my textbook um, and reviewed that reviewing that chapter and it's I'm still struck every time by the paucity of infer of studies in cats especially orthopedic right. stuff yeah. Right. And, and I think also like, TPLO started to take off a little bit in cats. And then there were those biomechanical yeah. studies on the on the cat of a limbs, which basically said, well, actually, if you rotate these to six degrees, maybe it doesn't stabilize the cat stifle at all. And maybe even if you rotate them to zero degrees, it doesn't stabilize the cat stifle either. So I think there's still, as you say, a lot more information that we need. Um, clinically, all the cats that have had TPLOs, to my knowledge, have, have done pretty well, um, looking at the ones in the literature. So clinically, it seems to work. But biomechanically, maybe there are some, again, some differences in the cats cats are not small dogs um etc etc maybe there are things we don't know yeah quite yet before we all jump on the bandwagon and start doing hundreds of these things but you may be more biomechanically forgiving though because they're more flexible they're smaller they're lighter anyway so right. you, you know you never know there you may have more wiggle room so to speak so. right yeah <laughs> so the other the other case i wanted to ask you about is romeo who had i guess some pretty bad facial injuries and yeah and uh and i i particularly wanted to ask you about that case because you used one of my absolute favorite things supportive things and that was an esophagostomy tube in that guy right yeah yeah absolutely uh, Romeo was, was, a, was a real work of passion for a lot of people in this hospital. This is not just my case by, by a long stretch. This was a real ECC, anesthesia, nursing. The residents and interns got super involved in this case too. So he was a lot more nursing care than actual yeah. surgery care that, that got that cat through the other side, I think. Um, so yeah, so Romeo came in with, with a huge number of facial injuries. He had maxillary fractures, mandibular fractures, uh, TMJ, temporomandibular joint luxation. Um, he had obviously the typical cat, like completely nose filled with blood clots and couldn't smell, didn't want to eat. 
um, and he had a traumatic brain injury when he first came in as well. Was so. he hit by car or? He was hit by car and unfortunately it was like a hit and run. So people hit him and didn't stop. So no, it was, it was, he was a very sad little story when he came in. Um, he turned, he just got everyone involved with him because even though he was such a mess when he first came in, he was still the nicest cat. He was still kind of, kind of trying to purr. He still wanted attention, still wanted to headbutt you, which was wow. cringeworthy because you knew how many pieces his head was in, but um, he still wanted to get head rubs and, and all those kind of things. So came in, everyone fell in love with him and, and it was a good thing because he was hit back and forth with us a fair amount um so we took a ct of his head we decided which injuries of his head really needed to be treated and which ones would maybe do okay if, if we did not kind of address them surgically um so his bilateral maxillary fractures we, we left alone really because they weren't that displaced but we did go ahead and plate his mandibular fracture with a tiny 1.1 millimeter locking set so that was um that's my new favorite toy for cat face injuries it's, it's like, um so that that worked really well and we reduced his um temporomandibular joint he does have a lot of injuries around. He certainly still is at risk for some ankylosis of, of that area. I am a little concerned about that, but um, he's but he's doing great right now. Um, but because of all of his injuries, he did need an esophagostomy tube for, for quite some time, um, partly for feeding, but also partly for medications, because obviously the owners were not going to be able to pill him very nicely at all. Um, so he had his e-collar on and he had his little kitty collar for his esophagostomy tube. He came in with all his accessories every week. Um, and he, um, he had to come in to see us every, every week because he was initially, he was exuding a lot from his nose and the owners were struggling to keep him clean, obviously. So um, he came in for little spa visits, kitty spa visits. Every, every Friday we saw him for about an hour and a half and we cleaned him up and we <laughs> cleaned his collars and we cleaned everything, gave him fresh things, made him smell nice and look beautiful again, mm. um, cleaned his ears because he couldn't get to them himself and <laughs> all those kind of things. So he was a real work of love. Um, and um, yeah, and, and he, he's, he's now got, he's now back at home. He's, he's lapping food rather than chewing it. I don't know if he does have a restricted range of motion, so I'm not sure whether he'll ever get back to eating his biscuits and, and things like that. But currently he's maintaining his weight and, and he's eating he's eating enough. Um, but we certainly, the owners know that he could need further treatment. He might need a, a temporomandibular joint excision arthroplasty at some point if this doesn't go in the right mm. direction. But we're monitoring him closely. I think he's due back in about another couple of weeks for his recheck to make sure he's still maintaining weight and, and doing well. It's just it's so amazing. It's a great story. So yeah. I have a question. Uh, is it this a rumor or is it true that dogs are often hit in the back because they run away, but cats kind of grab the asphalt with their, with their feet and are hit in the front? I don't know, in all honesty. I mean, I see probably as many tail pull injuries in cats as I see face injuries, which would tend oh. to indicate that it's probably fairly equal but i don't i don't know i've not actually heard that to be honest that's a new one for me <laughs> and, and the thing is that uh, you know when a cat gets hit by car you can see because of the nails mm. they grab the asphalt and they have always nails that are you know, yeah shredded so, mm. um, yeah it's that that's really interesting so let's get to the five top uh, diseases that you see most common in your specialty clinic wow. okay the diseases so we're excluding trauma uh you can include trauma you can do whatever <laughs> okay. you want as long okay. as it's well, maybe, maybe we'll have trauma as a, as a as a general thing so I, I would say i'd say um 
long bone fractures we see pretty pretty frequently. Um, probably the most common ones we'll see tibial fractures, femoral fractures will be the, be the big ones that we see most frequently. Um, so that's probably our number one. Um, number two will be some kind of um, osteoarthritic condition, um, most likely. So we see we see a lot of cats that are struggling with um, chronic um, osteoarthritic changes. Um, again, most commonly then we're going to see a lot of um, elbows um, and in, in, the, in the cats. Um, I'm going to kind of roll that into medial humeral epicondylitis. We yeah. do see that and we're seeing it with increasing frequency. Um, what's lovely about it though is we used to see them referred in as elbow arthritis um, and it wasn't really being recognized that it was a different condition. Yeah. And um, what I love, I had a little celebration, mini celebration yesterday because I had two cats referred in with early medial humeral mm. epicondylitis that had been recognized as exactly that. So I had a little celebration. I love it that this, uh, people are kind of getting a bit more aware of this condition. Because now we've seen these cats early and hopefully I won't have to take them to surgery because we're going to change their lifestyle. Can you describe that disease? Because I don't think that everybody will be... No. Yeah. Um, so um, medial humeral epicondylitis is um, a, we, we don't know exactly why it happens. We think it's a stress strain related, like chronic repetitive stress injury. Um, and it always affects the um, humeral head of the flexor carpi ulnaris muscle, where it kind of comes up and attaches onto the medial epicondyle. Um, and that's the most important stance muscle for cats for keeping their carpus upright. So we think it's related to when they do their really big jumps from like I've seen jumps from tops of wardrobes and all those kind of things um, and then land repetitively that they have a kind of chronic injury to that muscle that eventually heals by fibrous um, tissue and then that turns into mineralized tissue. Um, and often when we just see that maybe they're just a little bit lame and maybe doesn't even get picked up but then the ulnar nerve runs in such close proximity to that that it gets kind of involved in all that inflammatory reaction can get compressed between the two heads of the flexor carpi ulnaris um, and then we see these cats coming in with acute like non-weight bearing very painful non-responsive to analgesics and, and those are the cases that almost inevitably in my hands end up needing to go to surgery i try all the medications with them and mm. and they just it just doesn't cut it when they've got that nerve pain um, so we've been trying to get the message out there to say, please get them to us earlier, because if we can adjust their, um, and we can pick it up then with ultrasound. So we've done a few cases here really nicely using ultrasound and showing the fluid accumulation around the tendons, which is what they do in people with medial and lateral epicondylitis. They pick it up with ultrasound first at its early stages before it becomes mineralized. Um, so we've been using ultrasound to pick it up nice and early. Um, and then in those cases, we've had really good success. It's not a huge number of cases, kind of handful of cases, but really good success with just rehab, laser therapy, um, anti-inflammatories, changing their lifestyle and providing stepped access to things. Um, and we've managed to keep so far those cats out of surgery, not to say they won't need surgery eventually, mm. but they seem to be responding much better than the literature suggests they will once that disease becomes more chronic and, and evident on radiographs. So that's kind of the elbow arthritis and medial humeral epicondylitis kind of, they used to come together. Now they're starting to come separately, yeah. which is, which is great. Like, I, I remember seeing one of your cases. It might be the one that, um, I think it's the one that we're going to feature in my book actually that you, mm -hmm. wrote, that you clean amazing fragments out of the joint. Yeah. yeah. Just amazing. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
Yeah, she, she had she had huge fragments on one yes. side um, yes. and combined with osteochondromatosis and all manner of other things as well. So she, she was a, a real challenge for us, but she did great for like wow. 18 months after that. Yes. Uh, eventually her arthritis caught up with her and we, we had to start managing her elbow arthritis, but she didn't actually ever recur the epicondylitis. So that was, that was good. But her owner was super dedicated, did everything, changed her lifestyle, got the weight off her, did everything. So yeah. she did all, all the things right. Oh, great. <laughs> great. Um, I was going to say, my four. I would say, I say, if we go to four, um, I think probably four and five are going to be um, probably cat cruciate disease. We see a fair amount of, hmm. and then probably the next one we're seeing. I, although I didn't, I said, I said trauma was all one really. Okay, so the maxillofacial injuries we'll say are all in with the trauma, hmm. um, and then we do see a fair amount of um, hip conditions as well. Um, Probably the most common hip condition we see, and I think this is because hip arthritis is now being picked up and managed in practice quite a lot. So I don't think we're seeing as many referrals for, for that right now, but we see a lot of the slipped capital femoral epiphyses ah, um, yes. here as well. That's probably our biggest juvenile um, yeah. cat condition that, that we see. Yes. You pin those or you remove them? Depends. Um, unfortunately, we often get them too late, in my opinion, to, to pin them by the time because they often don't have that very acute lameness. They start to have a grumbling kind of chronic it, it weight bearing lameness. And so often they don't go to the vets there, even their primary care vets super quickly. Um, no one's fault. It's just this is yeah. the nature of uh, nature of life. Yeah. Um, and so by the time they get to us, they're often, you know, a week, 10 days old. Um, and in my opinion, if they're over about five days old, I tend to steer away from pinning them because I think I won't get an accurate reduction and mm. the vascularity is probably impaired to the point that it's going to um, not heal very well. Mm. I mean, the owner's got zero financial concerns and wants me to have a go with the accepting that we may have to do a salvage procedure later, then, then I can try. But beyond five days, I start being fairly guarded about my prognosis for saving that hip and then mm. we start talking to the owners about um femoral head and neck excision versus total hip replacement mm. in those days so. I, I don't know what you think about those but my we, we've seen many of them over the years and <clears throat> my feeling is that there's not like an event and it happens mm. it kind of slowly right. i mean it might take a few days but it's not like an acute event right yeah. so there's like nothing that makes the owners go oh like look yeah at it's very true like it, I, I don't know if i'm saying let me saw a boss who was a beautiful maine coon who had who had this condition and um the owner just noticed he got a little quieter mm. um that when she looked at it she had three maine coons and they always used to sit together and she just noticed that she'd look around and the two would be in one place and boss wouldn't be with them and she was like okay well that's a, a little weird maybe he just doesn't like them anymore or something um and then he went off his food a little bit um, and that's when she, she brought him in and, it, and his primary care vet found the crepitus on the hips and then sent him to us, but he was off his food because of pain, but he wasn't actually obviously limping because it was bilateral. Yeah. So he was just a little stick. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I agree. I, rarely do we see them come in as a kind of, my, my cat went acutely lame and I noticed it immediately. It's more of a grumbling problem, which is why we don't see them yeah. probably fresh enough to, to do a lot of surgical repair. I've done a few with the pins, um, but not, not many. Most of them we see too late, I think. Mm -hmm. Another topic is uh, obviously hip dysplasia in cats mm. because it occurs. And a lot of people think when you think hip dysplasia only the D word, but uh, cats get hip dysplasia too. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, fairly commonly, I think. And um, I think the challenge with that is that they, they just don't produce the same radiographic changes that dogs do at all. And, and when they do produce them, they produce them super late. Um, and also we all know that I uh, see cat hips, are, their acetabulae are shallower. Their femoral head often doesn't have that 50% overlap. So you can't really use that as your cutoff to, to say this cat has hip dysplasia or not. 
Um, and I think doing an Ortolani sign on young cat orthopedic exams hasn't really percolated through as being a real, really just a part of the exam. I mean, it is for, for those of us that see a lot of cats with hip dysplasia, but probably isn't considered a routine part of an orthopedic exam in cats, maybe because a lot of them have to be sedated in order to be able to do it. But. And, and, and could you describe, so how would people diagnose this hip dysplasia in cats? What's the best way to do that? Yeah, it is, it is a little difficult. I mean, it's a physical exam wise, they can present with a huge spectrum of, of signs. Um, there are some reports in the literature, of very, very acute onsets of, of cats that are kind of really not wanting to walk at all. But I think that's the, that's the, not the commonest presentation. Um, normally what I'll hear from owners is again, again, this kind of very like slowly progressive, not jumping up onto things, um, seeming a little bit stiff, um, maybe being a bit hyper reactive when the owner pets over the caudal spine, which maybe they, they weren't previously. Um, we often see as well cats that kind of just suddenly that kind of cat thing where they're sitting apparently very, very comfortably and then all of a sudden they suddenly turn around and look and then scoot off across the room. And that's often a sign of that they've got a painful focus somewhere as well. So um, that's something that, that we see quite frequently. Um, and then when they come in for exam, um, I think the main thing for me different in a cat orthopedic exam is a lot of cats for me don't hugely like full hip extension. They like a lot of them, even if they've got perfectly normal hips, don't super like doing that. So I tend to use hip abduction as my screening rather than hip extension a lot of the time. And if they'll tolerate 90 degrees of hip abduction, zero problem, zero crepitus, probably the hip is normal. Um, and some of them tolerate extension great, but if it's just extension that's a bit like that they just seem to resent, but they tolerate abduction fine, then hip dysplasia goes a little lower down on, on my list there. Mm. Um, and then radiographically, obviously they're, they're very different. They do have those shallower acetabuli. Um, they don't tend to produce those degenerative changes of the femoral head and neck in the same way that dogs do. So the first thing I look for on the radiographs really is, is at the cranial extent of the acetabulum, just that cranial effective edge. And often they'll just do a tiny little, little beak on the top of there. There's a tiny little ostiphyte will form and maybe a little bit of sclerosis in, in that area too. And that to me is the first thing that I look for in those guys. I don't tend to be as successful looking for a Morgan line or that caudal curvilinear osteophyte or its new name. Um, and, um, but I, that little beak is the giveaway for me and then that pain on hip abduction. And then we can do Norberg angles and, and distraction indices and all those kind of things, but we just need to be aware that the cutoff for normal versus abnormal is, is, is different in, in cats because their acetabulum is more shallow and they have more intrinsic laxity associated with their hips before it becomes pathological. Yeah, I think sadly, you know, we show found... a picture of the beak uh, on the website. Because oh, yeah, the little, the little edge with a big arrow. This is <laughs> look here. <laughs> sadly, I, I think I've seen a number of them that got diagnosed finally when they're older and they get start getting arthritis, and then you mm -hmm. radiograph and you go, Oh, like, look, right, had hip dysplasia all along, right? Right, yeah. absolutely. And, and there are some cases described where they do total hips in cats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've done a couple of total hips in cats. I, I think they're great. I, <laughs> but um, the ones I've done have, have normally been for the slipped capital femoral epiphysis. So I guess my main concern about them there is we're doing them in a very, very young cat. And I, I don't know how long these hip implants are going to last these guys. Obviously, in, in dogs, we kind of expect them to last somewhere between seven and 10 years. And 
although cats are smaller, so are their implants. And if they're really active, they might be kind of wearing these implants pretty quickly. So I think I do them, but I always warn owners that, you know, we may well be needing to do a revision at some point, whether it's replacing the plastic lining of the cup or, or, or doing something in the future and definitely recommend monitoring these cats every year to make sure that if there is something that's going wrong with those implants, we know about it sooner rather than later and any revision will be hopefully easier. Not that it's ever gonna be easy, but easier. So yeah, the one thing, that's my one concern with them is when cats are living till kind of 20, 22 and beyond, um, I certainly am not expecting that hip implant to last 20, 18, 20 years. Um, but maybe they do, I, I don't know. I guess that right yeah. now we just don't have that information. Exactly, there's so few of them in the literature, right? There's so few of them, anybody's followed up for any length of time that we exactly. still need to figure that out, I think. But it's exciting that people I think the information will be coming because we started doing them in cats, what, about 10 years ago. So hopefully we're going to start getting that information, yes. but it's going to be slow to percolate through probably. <laughs> this has been so cool. You know, we can talk for hours about this, but sadly time is up again. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's very, very, so thank you so much, uh, uh, Karen. This was, this was amazing, uh, you know. Every time when we speak about things, I learn something more. I, yeah. we, we've had quite a lot of medical topics, so I learn a lot. Yeah. Uh, and with, even with surgical topics, I learn uh, new things. So I really appreciate that. And hopefully, I've been taking uh, notes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, you should be writing notes. And then I need to buy, uh, obviously, Susan's book, or maybe I get a free example with a... <laughs> So I don't have to carry it to you her. You have to wait till the new one comes out. It's in the yeah, works. Exactly. With the new chapter. So looking yeah. forward to that. So uh, this was the Per Podcast. Uh, you can find us on perpodcast.net. <laughs> and uh, you can find us on any, uh, any platform uh, where you find your favorite podcasts. And this should be on top, uh, of course. Uh, <laughs> then uh, we have many social media handles uh, or we are on many social media places with the handle at Per Podcast. And uh, we hopefully will be venturing into LinkedIn. That was something <laughs> we promised right now. So if uh, Karen does it, we'll do it the same thing. Uh, and um, we, like I said, we have a great website uh, that we have a lot of information on. Normally it takes a little bit of a couple of days before all the information is there. Uh, Dr. Susan is doing a great job there, uh, but she's very busy. So it might take a little bit. It's a small well, matter of a pandemic, you know. Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. If you like a podcast, please uh, give us a good review. Yes. Give us five stars. Five stars. That's what we want, uh, because that helps us really uh, uh, climbing the ranks, so people can find us a little easier. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Karen Perry, thank you thank so you. much. This yeah. was great. That's excellent. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs>
cat, pet, Susan. Dr. Yurl Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at G-V-E-T-S-X. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast. 